Hello and welcome back to Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always we end the show with our recommendations for further reading, further watching inspired by this week's film. But before we kick off, and it's been a, a bit of a hiatus, so you've had time to, I'm sure, watch loads, Rob. What have you done in, in our two weeks off? I genuinely have watched loads. Oh, right. um, I, I, I'm not going to go through every single one. I, 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 I store all my watching now on um, Letterboxd, so I've kept all my things there. And so I'm looking through what I've watched recently. I talked about Cog before. I've watched... Um, Fast Times Ridden High, I've watched Princess Bride, I've watched Tomorrowland, which I think uh, was a film that didn't get a lot of love when it came out, but I've given it another go and it, uh, it's better than it being. The film I want to talk about is the 2013 film Blue Ruin, um, from director Jeremy Solnier, um, Sterry Macon Blair, essentially is the tale of a, a homeless man who's the killer of his parents is released from prison. And he goes on a trail of vengeance um, to avenge the death of his parents. It is unique in that the Avenger, shall we say, is as incompetent as you and I would be in this kind of mission. Um, it is brutal. It is darkly, blackly comedic. Um, and it, it's got a brilliant sort of main character in, in Macon Blair. Um yeah, it, it's strange. He is as incompetent as we would be. And I don't know what you're talking on... about. I'm a trained assassin. Yes, yes, of course you are. Of course you are, Sam. I I grew up with you. We we, we aren't built for this kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just it's very good, very very good. And it's it's it often gets a lot of love from critics. Um, it's called Darling. Um, and I just wanted to kind of catch up with it, and it was well worth it. Good. So yeah, Blue Ruin. What about you, Sam? Um. Well, I. <sighs> taking get a lot of time to go to the cinema at the moment but i have actually been to the cinema for the first time in in a month or so and seen the new guardians of the galaxy film and it i mean it, it is too long and it's a bit flabby in the middle and could do with some editing and i'm not sure it does everything it wants to do and you probably have to like Kurt Russell to like some bits of it, but it it's it's great fun. And there were bits of it that I was genuinely moved by. There are messages about um, belonging and family, and um, whereas I suppose whereas I've heard Chris Pratt talk about this, the first film was about um, finding your connection with other people this film is about building that connection so before it was about creating a family this is about living together as a family with all the love and antagonism that that might entail um and i found parts of very moving particularly the end um so yes there are the improvements that could be made it was an amazing film but it, it was really well worth watching Fair enough. I hope we get to see that in the next week or so. I've got two weeks off work. I'm probably going to catch up on some of these uh, movies I've been missing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one I want to catch up. I'm glad. I'm going to do it. This week's film is we are we are sticking with the same overall franchise, but we're moving into a different director. Rob's favourite director after Tim Burton. Um, it is the first of the Christopher Nolan Batman films, Batman Begins. Thank <laughs> you. 
Mr. Wayne. Death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. Batman Begins from 2005 picks up after an eight-year hiatus um, with a reboot of the story. It takes a new, a new tone, a new direction, and it, as I said, kicks off the narrative again. Um, Christopher Bale. Christopher Bale, Christian Bale, is the protagonist with support from Michael Caine as Alfred, Katie Holmes as Rachel, although she gets replaced in later films, and Gary Oldman as Gordon, amongst other positive support. On the quote-unquote bad side, we have Liam Neeson as Razor Gould or Henry Ducard, depending on how you want to view him. And um, Killian Murphy as Scarecrow or Dr. Jonathan Crane. The two villains, but mainly Ra's al Ghul, with his group of warriors, the League of Shadows, aim to take down Gotham, which has become a place of corruption. By They want to do so by spreading a hallucinogen um, through the city's water supply, and Batman intervenes. And that's about it. So, Rob, I hesitate to say this, but your thoughts? So, now it's. I must say, I watched this film again in preparation for the podcast, and I clearly forgot large parts of this film. Um, and I don't think that's that's to its benefit. <laughs> okay, I, I will open with some some good things about the film. I think it's important to open any review with, with good things about the mm. film. I think Cillian Murphy is very good in this film. I think he brings the right kind of slightly weird, slightly charismatic mm. um, character to that. I think Michael Caine is very good, and it seems to be the role of a lifetime, especially for his later years in this. And I think that the production design certainly deserves full credit. The tumbler, the bat suit, all these kind of things are are certainly a a marked Batman compared to pre-Batman. Mm. But I do not like these films. I do not like this film. It has not warmed to me on its second viewing. I think the film is dour. I think the film is joyless. I think that the film has no has nothing to say about Batman. And I think whilst things like Batman Robin, Batman Forever may be neon monstrosities, but at least they had the courage of their convictions and they accepted that they were comic book films. This film tends to make out that it is a a real world take on Batman. It is a realistic vision of Batman. But in which this he has a car that can jump over nothing and he has this magic material that suddenly goes rigid. You know, he he his toys are as as unrealistic as anything else. And even you look at the, the the design of Gotham, the idea that there's this magic machine that can vaporize water in the mains, but nothing else, because we are all water as well. And so, well, people exploding around it, it just makes it is as silly as anything else. But it pretends somehow that it's above that, and it's not that. And I just 
I, I, I find it disingenuous as a film. And there are films out there like um, All Superheroes Must Die or Super that do take a realistic, real-world look at what it takes to be a superhero in this world. This is not it. Um, on top of that, I think that Katie Holmes can't act. Whatever disagreements we have about anything else in this film, I will 100% agree with you there. She's terrible. And I think Christian Bale is terrible far more than he is good. Um, I think he is a particularly joyless actor. Um, and I think he... I struggle to think of maybe more than two, three films of his that I actually enjoy. So, yes, the, the, this, the, the next three weeks will be an interesting yeah. thing. This. I think there are interesting things to say about this film. I think the film is trying to do some interesting things, but I just have no time. It, 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 it is just it is a two-hour slog of joyless navel-gazing. Okay, in, in opposition, opposition to that, I have okay. this, this theory about this particular incarnation of Batman. Because this is something that we'll get into more widely in this film this the idea of fear is one that we can talk about a lot um but what i quite like and i would take issue with this this idea that you said that it doesn't say anything new about batman as a character is that it's as if this is the first time we have a batman who is willing to sacrifice himself for other people it's as if he wants only himself and no one else in Gotham to feel fear. So when he battles with Razor Ghoul, or he, um, I suppose that there are there are several times that happens. The first time in the mountains, and then the second time in in his mansion, he is he is concerned with the fact that he is prepared to suffer, but other people shouldn't suffer, and he presents himself as a martyr. And this was the first time that I understood Batman in that way. In the first time in, in these films. Because I haven't seen so far Michael Keaton or Val Kilmer or George Clooney as martyrs. And it's frustrated me. Because there is an accusation levelled against Batman that, well, if you want to fix social deprivation, then you're a billionaire just cough up some money and that's how I feel when looking at those earlier incarnations of Batman I think well you're not tortured at all and there's an easy way out and this is the first time that I saw a Batman for whom there wasn't that easy way out and I just I found that convincing that's why I found this film more convincing than the others because I think that it actually gets to the heart of of what Batman is because of that self-sacrifice, I suppose my my view is, is that as as Rachel Dawes says at the end, the the Bruce Wayne we see is a mask, mm. but also so is Batman, and so the film presents two masks and fails to present any kind of actual person in amongst this. And I'm you know, I'm not saying that earlier films did this to great effect, but the film I suppose. I suppose to get to the nail, to get to the, the heart of it, the nail on the head is that I reject this film on its premise of being a real world interpretation of Batman, mm. um, and the idea that it somehow delves into the psychology of Batman, um, and I just think that's bunk. He's he's just he's a rich kid who is scared of bats, 
and decides to be a vigilante because mm. uh, a, a a now clearly terrorist told him to be. You know, the, the there was a lot of talk about. You know, I feel it was it was a kind of a, a narrative trick to say how how his parents tried to save the um save the city, um, but no one would help them, and it took them dying to galvanize people to protect it. And I, I appreciate that, but at the same time, Bruce Wayne is clearly rich enough to do kind of whatever he wants. He's he's rich like God's rich kind of thing in this in this film. He buys a hotel just to cover his you know his new persona of of the millionaire playboy. Mm. And like you could be doing so much to save the city, you could be doing so many things to save the. But he doesn't, you know. There's there's always talk about how you know the depression and the economics brought in need and made everybody a criminal. Even Joe Chill, the killer of his parents, whether you believe him or not, his tale is that he was he lost his job. He was you know, the, the the desperation yeah. of of the economics led him to that. So rather than trying to fix that, Batman decides, you know what? Those people who are destitute, the people who have nothing, who turn into crime, I will go and punch them in the face. Yeah. And that is his reaction to this. And I appreciate that. I think here, and I appreciate that it's Batman. He's a superhero. He isn't, you know, the tales of Bruce Wayne the philanthropist are not going to sell comic books. No. But I think if as I come back, if you are going to try and tell me a real world story about vigilantism and superheroes, you have to face real criticisms. You have to face the questions of why didn't you know? You know when it's um, George Clooney skating around wearing you know spandex and bat nipples and that stuff like you're in a fantasy world you aren't looking for reality you're not looking for reasoning it's in a fantasy world but if Nolan who I don't think is very anyway tries to bring it oh actually here we're doing about real why would he do this and then if you want to talk about a real world Batman fine let's do it but let's talk about that and I think that the idea that real world and gritty are the same thing is a misnomer that had been laid at Batman's door. But that's a whole other row. I think then, moving away from the sort of, I suppose, the the intentions of the director, just looking, it, it strikes me as, as a much more enjoyable film to look at. It's a more aesthetically pleasing film. And as someone who has dealt with the aesthetics of film for quite a long time, can you... Could could you not appreciate that about? I suppose no, because it's not pretty. It's just desaturated. It's just taken all the colour out of it. There's no, there's nothing interesting about the look of this film. You know, I mean, for all its you know mistimed and misjudgedness, at least something like Batman and Robin had a look, had a had a a, a stake in the grass, saying this is this is our style. The style of this is, I don't know, neoconservative industrial complex it's, it's everything's in blacks and greys and you know it, it's not interesting to look at at all I, I i say production design is a different thing and i say you know the tumbler is a wonderful bit of you know within the world that i sell that's a wonderful bit of thing and i love the idea that they're having to buy thousands of cows to hide ears and the testing of that and the idea that there isn't this giant cave under there and they found they i like all that but as a visual film it's not um I don't think that it's it's uh, it's anything to write home about when it comes to visuals. The only bit of interesting visual work in this film is the fear sections. Um, 
Mm. And then they're, they're just parroting on old Italian giallo horror tropes. Um, they aren't doing anything interesting with that. You just got camera shaking, glowing eyes. I have feelings about this film. <laughs> if anyone hasn't noticed. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm thinking actually, this is something you you mentioned there. Something that struck me visually about this film was when he discovers the Batcave for the first time, or when he he and Alfred are involved in setting up the Batcave. It just, I just liked the way that looked. And yes, it was dark, and yes, it was desaturated, but I just like the the comparison between that and something like the neon of Batman and Robin. That just felt, and and I I know I'm this is this is someone who likes the early two thousand films of Inyaritu arguing against someone who likes Batman and Robin, but <laughs> I don't think. Visually, there was something something that, that drew me to that, to the realism of that depiction of the Batcave. And I, I suppose if you're... I can see how, you know, a, a, a realistic take. It's trying to do that. Um, and I suppose... How do I say this? My general view is that the film lacks the courage of its convictions. As you say, it has these elements trying to build a real-world Batman. And I appreciate, I will applaud that. And whilst I don't, I don't like Nolan's director much, I can applaud the idea of that. But the third act is just straight horror action movie. It's just an action movie. You lose any sense of a real world impact in any of this. Mm. Batman becomes superhuman once again. Ra's al Ghul is equally superhuman. You have this weird MacGuffin of this microwave emitter thing. Um, and it just, it, it descends into traditional action movie tropes i don't mind those tropes but if you've told an audience you're one thing in which case this is a real world gritty take on the batman franchise it's hard to then turn around and say actually at the end it's all just an action movie a, a lot of this in in you can be level the fact that you just don't get on board with nolan and there's a lot in the way that he directs him that ask you for a suspension of disbelief and if you're not willing to make that suspension then you really are not going to like it i'm not i'm not saying I'm not saying this is a, a, a flaw in you at all i'm saying this is something about his direction that he it's like you said with with the uh, microwave vaporization of the water it doesn't affect the people like there is something fundamentally silly about that that he's asking you to forget and go along with and that's something that he does as a director. And I, 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 I have no problem with that. You know, I, I'm a firm, as I say, often because trash films, bad films, things that I inherently silly, I love them. But I think the problem, and I actually disagree with you when it comes in. But Nolan has built his career, I think, on trying to tell real world stories, not in the real world. But like his talk of Memento is early film. Memento is a big film that kind of made him famous in many ways. Um, it's about it's it's like meticulously plotted uh, and it uh, unfolds. And the idea that you look at the Batman films, you look at Inception, you look at Interstellar. Um, these are films where he is trying to trying to bring as much realism in inverted commas to these stories as he can. You know, yes, some are fantastical, especially things like Inception. Uh, they're very fantastical, but they are trying to, you know, he's not trying to tell you fantasy stories. No. And he catches all these things in 
in the framework and the language of a realistic story. This isn't science fiction. It isn't fantasy. It's barely superheroes. Um, it's more of like a, a, a drama in many ways. And I have no problem with that. There are many out there who work in a certain filmic language and a certain filmic tradition of being realism and that there are, you know, films sit on a realism to fantasy sort of scale. But I think he's trying to have his cake and eat it a little bit by saying, oh, you know, my style is realism. My style is, you know, if I was building a Batmobile, what would it like? And here's a, how would we make it work? And then to undercut that by saying, here's a magic fabric that I put a current through it and suddenly it's solid. And I don't think you, you can't have it both ways. You can't kind of do hard sci-fi and also do hand wavy you know, it's all Doctor Who tummy-wimey stuff. Don't worry about it. Mm. You can't you can't get it both ways. Be hard sci-fi or be soft sci-fi or hard action, soft action. I, I don't mind, um, but you can't have it both ways. And like, to th- th- throw an example to you, it's something like um, Mr. Robot, which I know you've been watching and enjoying. Mm, yeah. Now, Mr. Robot has has stated its reputation on being realistic. You know, the realism of, of the hacker movement in that is it's what it's hung its hat on many times. And if in the final episode of Mr. Robot, they suddenly broke out, I don't know, the computer hacking scene from Jurassic Park, mm. you, it would feel disingenuous and it would feel out of place and wrong. And it feels like you've done all this work now and you couldn't make the last leap to you and, oh, it does this, tra mm. And that's how I feel about this film in particular i'm not you know i i in coming weeks we will touch on i know the dark knight and dark knight rises which i remember being i remember enjoying at least dark knight a bit more than i enjoyed this one but i don't th- i think he's trying to have cake and eat it mm. um and i think that the same can be said about a lot of his films right. but anyway moving on from my my personal rants about this film <laughs> and we spent 20 minutes doing that <laughs> you mentioned it earlier about this idea of fear mm. And I think that the film is trying to use the idea of fear as this kind of and this driving force behind the film, and it's referenced quite a lot, especially his fears and other people's fears. Yeah, that that's 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 what I was trying to get at in the start. That so much of this film is built around the fear of Batman, and this is the first time that you see. Batman as a vulnerable entity who does fear things and that appears to be what's driving him. So fear does seem to be really important. Yeah, I think I think it's as he often says, you know, I'm, I'm, I go with bats and I'm scared of bats and I want to make them scared of me. And I want to make criminals scared like other people shouldn't be scared. Hmm. And, and this is idea that he's he's facing his fears and overcoming his fears. Um, and I was. I must say, I was. And obviously, and you've got a scarecrow who's kind of he's taking those fears and kind of weaponizing them, shall we say, weaponizing the fear within people. Mm. Um, and I really, I must say, I really thought some bits of that were interesting. And the idea that you know people start to see their fears, and as he's talking to Batman, uh, like a bat comes out of his mouth. I like, I like that. I really like that visual of of, of the bat coming out of scarecrow's mouth. Actually, I did, I did feel I wanted when um, when Rachel gets hit by the drug and Batman saves her and drives her to the cave. I I wanted to see her looking at him and seeing the sorts of things that 
she was seeing in Scarecrow. Do you know what I mean? I, I wanted her to still mm. be hallucinating and still see bats come out of his mouth or, or leeches or whatever it was. That that was I thought they it known and missed a trick with that. That there could have been some continuity there. And you mentioned Italian giallo horror earlier. So there's, there's there's sort of a visual tradition that you're talking about here. Yeah, and I, 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 I say I, I saw that that scene with Batman. I really liked. It. I thought, oh, brilliant! I, I'm liking the idea of that of like facing fears and overcoming them. Um, and I, was, I, thought, I said, like you, disappointed that we never really saw it again. And when Scarecrow gets infected by his own toxins, he just sees like a weird kind of all black figure mm. um, that has no. I, I'm not saying I can't. I'm not a, a classical art scholar. I'm sure there's something there, but it isn't explained to the audience as to what I'm seeing. No. And also, I must say, I felt a little disappointed that the solution to Batman being able to fight that was not facing his fears, overcoming his fears, any kind of, you know, emotional, physical, or, or psychological attempt. It was, I've made a protein. Here it is. You're fine. Mm. Um, and I think like it was, like, I really like the idea of, and I like the idea of Batman fighting a villain he can't punch. Mm. Um, and I always enjoy when you've got. I mean, we discussed it with Jim Carrey, and I was you weren't a fan of his performance. I enjoy the the character of the Riddler, who isn't a physical one, but is a smart, like wily character. Yeah. And you've got the same here. You know, Ra's al Ghul is a more of a physical punch him in the face kind of bad guy. Um, but Scarecrow is this is this, is this force, this, this the embodiment of fear, um, and he can't punch it in the face. But the film contrives that he can. Um, but I really like the idea that they've made the the fears into this, like, focus it down to a single person. Like, they've taken all the fears of, of everyone in Gotham, of crime, of, of being murdered, and all that kind of stuff, and put it in this, in this, uh, is one person. Well, that's, that's something we'll get onto next week. That's something I think was really, really successful about Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker, was that he was such a cerebral villain that the moments of actual physical violence really shocked you. And there's mm. something really exciting, or not in a, not in a good way, but in, in a sort of an enervating way, about seeing him being horrifically violent because he hadn't been violent before, he'd just been this this thinker. Yes. I think that that continues this from... This, the the Killian Murphy character that starts in the first film. Yeah, and, and so I, I think so. I, I always feel that Scarecrow is more interesting villain than, than Golda Cat. Um, Golda Cat. He's Golda Cat. He's someone from Superman, from Star Trek. Yeah. Um, I always felt that Scarecrow is a more interesting villain than uh, Ra's al Ghul or Ducat. Um because I think Ra's al Ghul is just he's he's that traditional we've seen that kind of bad guy thousands of times you know like humanity's gone too far we need to wipe off the planet kind of that, that kind of rationale as 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 a bad guy we've seen it a lot um and I, I was less interested in that but i was much more interested in the scarecrow as as this kind of i know this always mythical figure and, and there's, there's a scene in which he's on the back of a horse for some reason no idea why it's got a horse mm-hmm. um and in, in with the toxin for the people um, you see him breathe fire and glowing eyes, and it's almost kind of reminiscent of something like um, the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow, and that kind of you know medieval horror film. And I, I really like the idea of that kind of version of the scarecrow—that he's this kind of boogeyman, 
that he, he he's the monster lurking in the darkness and it's not a scary eat you monster but it's a scary terrify you babadook style monster mm. right then to stop you ranting about this film anymore and um, let's <laughs> let's have some recommendations what have you got for us okay so I, i've got two recommendations uh, both actor based um one similar vein one really not similar vein and so my first one is uh, Cillian Murphy, who I did praise at the start of my review, who I think was very good in this. And as I was like, I'm a really big fan of his character. Um, I probably first saw Cillian Murphy back in 2002 um, on, I think, what is one of the most seminal zombie films of all time, 20 Days Later. This film probably needs no introduction, really, but it is a, a post-apocalyptic zombie film set in abandoned England. Cillian Murphy plays a survivor. Um, he meets up with Naomi Harris and Christopher Eccleston. And it's about them discover him, him him waking up and discovering this uh, infected land um, and trying to survive within it. It is brutal. It is bleak. Um, it is violent, but it's also full of humanity and at times humour. And he is, once again, he's a very different character to this. He isn't playing on his slightly awkward weirdness that he plays in a lot of his films. Um, but he is very, very good in it. Secondly, which is the completely nothing like it, but I like the actor, so I'm recommending him uh, from them, is Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson plays uh, Falcone, the mob boss, and I think he's very good in it as well. I think having him as the mob boss was an inspired bit of casting. And I want to recommend a film from only a couple of years ago now, 2011, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Now, we've discussed this previously, and I think it's it's one of a left-field choice for, for my normal film recommendations. Um, but it tells a tale of some retirees from England who moved to India and basically join at a, a retirement community over there. He plays one of the retirees alongside Bill Nighy, Julie Dench, Maggie Smith, um, and Dev Patel as the local uh, who runs the community. It's just a really nice film. It's wonderfully acted. it's a cream of of uh, older actors from the uk death patel is very good and deservedly so it reminds me of my time in india so it has a little bit of that working for me and i just think it's a lovely fun british film and enjoyable family film well i have two recommendations i've just changed one of them um <laughs> did, I, did i pick you the post there i changed one of them because i think that um, you have not been particularly kind to Christian Bale and I think he is very good in a recent film so I'm going to shout out to a recent film it's The Big Short mm-hmm. um, I didn't necessarily particularly like the film I didn't well I couldn't really not that you have to but empathise with any of the characters um, and I didn't necessarily like it the way it was shot but he was very good and he was completely not the Bruce Wayne character. He's different in every conceivable way. And he is, um, it stands out actually because you tend to, there's this trope of associating troubled geniuses with um, sort of cultured pursuits, playing chess, listening to classical music. And when and he is a maths genius, he's an economics genius, and 
when he needs to think, he goes away into his office and listens to really, really loud thrash metal. Mm. And it, I just really enjoyed that. So, yes, that's my first one. My second film is someone who I have never particularly been a fan of, but I think, as you suggested, he's sort of come into his own later in his career. And that's my Kane. I think he's particularly good in these known films. He's also very good in a 2009 film, Harry Brown, which is incredibly taut and not particularly joyful, quite violent. Um, but it's just a really, it's a, it's a tense, sparsely plotted little um, British film and uh, more people need to see it. It's really good. I haven't, I haven't watched it. I will add it to my list. Well, guys, we will be back here next week with The Dark Knight, next in the Nolanverse Batman trilogy. Till then, you can find both of us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.